to the Urban Planners Podcast, hosted by Gigi the Planner. This podcast is about all things urban planning related and otherwise. In this setting, we'll discuss the ins and outs of the planning field. We'll even delve into some very controversial topics involving the role planners have to take in their everyday lives and jobs. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. This This is Gigi the Planner. Welcome everyone to episode 10 of the Urban Planners Podcast. In today's episode, I will be interviewing Mitchell Silver, the current New York City Parks Commissioner and the past first black APA president. And in today's episode, we will be discussing his past experiences as a planner over the past 35 years and going into depth on how you as a planner can keep your spark in the planning field. I hope you all enjoy. So let's jump into today's episode. Welcome. Should I call you Mitch, Mitchell, Mr. Silver? What do you prefer? Mitchell is fine. Mitchell's fine. Okay, cool. Well, welcome, Mitchell, to the Urban Planners Podcast. I'm glad to have you here. Glad to be here, Gisela. Thank you. Um, So first off, please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your educational background, and what sparked your interest in the planning field. Well, um, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was raised here in New York and lived here most of my life. Um, Had a great, great childhood here in New York. Grew up right next to Prospect Park and Brooklyn Botanical Garden. And then I think hard times really hit when my mother passed away when I was 12, that really changed my life and my entire family's life. Even though I had a great childhood, that really changed things. And really as a result, um, uh, I really had a tough time in high school, ended up dropping out. That has its own story. So I never graduated from high school, ended up getting a GED. And then after that, uh, started to really pursue architecture. I always had a love for buildings and cities influenced way back when I saw the 1964 World's Fair store model of the city called Panorama. And it was something about seeing that model that really, really touched me and stayed in my head the entire time. So I pursued architecture because I had this fascination for buildings and cities. It was while I was in school at Pratt Institute that I learned about planning. I didn't know it existed. And the fact that I could be an architect for cities, for neighborhoods, really intrigued me. So I had a combined degree And then after I graduated, um, I pursued planning at Hunter College. And then from there on, my career just basically took off, working in New York City, Washington, D.C., North Carolina. And uh, it was really just a great career path. Got very active in the American Planning Association while I was in New York. And that also took me on a separate career path from both the local level, being a chapter president, then getting on board of directors, and ultimately the president of the American Planning Association. So very quickly, in a nutshell, that is it. But um, there was something about planning when I remember there was a professor that said that my design is ruined the minute my client walks in and occupies the house. That didn't sit well with me. And I wanted something that had more of a personal connection, a soul connection, a spiritual connection to communities and neighborhoods and fell in love with planning and really never turned back. So that's kind of the story. And I'm sure you can get into some more questions to tell you why I believe planning is so important. But I made the right decision. My father wasn't happy. He was like, what is a planner? Because he knew what an architect was, but he had no idea what a planner was. But years later, he turned to me and said, you made the right decision. 
and I can see the impact you're making on everyday people versus an architect, not saying they don't have an impact on a building or on the structure, but to be a planner and affect the whole neighborhood, a city is truly powerful and the people who live there. Mm-hmm. Cool. So did you ever use your bachelor's in architecture? Did you ever have an architectural type of position or job? Uh, not exactly. In my first few jobs, because I had a design background, I used to do a lot of site plan review. So it gave me an advantage to understand topography. I was a planner for what was called the Hillside Preservation District in Staten Island. So I knew a lot about drainage. I knew about topography. I knew about siting a building. So that became very helpful. And then uh, when I went to my second job at the Manhattan Borough President's Office, that's when my design skills really came into play because I realized I had talent to be an urban designer, designing public spaces. So I eventually became a parks commissioner later on, but back then to have urban design skills became very, very helpful because now I was working in Manhattan and understand view quarters and public spaces and setbacks became very, very useful. So throughout my career, even now at the parks department, being an urban designer and understanding the design process has been very helpful. So I've used it, I'd have to say, out of my 35 years in my career, I would say probably 33 of the 35 years I've used my design skills. Oh, that's awesome. That's really great. I, you know, honestly, I went to get into architecture too. My mom went to FAMU um, in architecture school. And then I decided, you know, I think this is a little too nitpicky for me. So <laughs> I will go another route. And then I found urban design and then ultimately urban planning. Yeah, when I was taking the courses and they started getting into some math and physics and I was like, hold up, I thought I was done with that in high school. But you have to understand, you have to understand the structure of, of a building, the materials. And so we went really in depth with some classes. I finished my degree, it was five years, but that's when I realized this is a lot more science. I like the art and the creativity uh, while architecture had that, but there's also a science to making sure buildings stay up and uh, they're built well for people. So you briefly mentioned about your main roles. You worked for you know, a New York City planning-based firm. You were the direct planning director in DC, the chief of planning and development for the city of Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and now you're the New York City Parks Commissioner. Um, what are some of the most important things that you have gleaned from your experience as a planner over the past few decades? Well, for one, it's the impact you have on people. Uh, I believe as a planner, we're supposed to protect the public health, safety, and welfare. And I believe as planners, if we don't do it, I'm not sure who will. So I always first and foremost understood my role to protect the public interest, the public health, safety, and welfare. The other one is I want to make sure I understood my purpose as a planner. And I believe that we're the guardians of the future. We look ahead at some of those emerging trends to make sure we protect the public's back. We know what's coming, whether it's climate change, sea level rise, changing demographics, changing household types, and that we have to look about what's coming and make sure we plan for that uncertainty or we plan for what we believe are gonna be the emerging issues. So that's something I've always held dear. Uh, I believe plans need to watch the future like stockbrokers watch the market. What's coming so I can go to my city council, I can go to my mayor and say, look, these trends are coming. We have an aging population, we have to do something. We're seeing less and smaller uh, households moving towards single person households. That's gonna change how we plan for housing. So my, I believe a planner needs to look at those emerging trends and make sure we communicate that today 
so we can prepare for those issues going forward. So to me, those are like the core ones, and it helped define me as a professional. Each and every job, whether it was in Washington, D.C., or Raleigh, or here in New York, I want to make sure we embrace those emerging trends, those challenges that we're facing, and make sure we have a conversation, and not do this wish list planning. What would you like to see for the future? Uh, I don't really ascribe to that. To me, it's like there's some critical core issues coming up. Even this recent pandemic, how will this change the way we plan for the future? Those are the conversations I want to have, and I want to be able to inform the citizens, the businesses, the elected officials about how now do we prepare for the future. In some cases, it's uncertain, but that's the work of planners we have to do, and that's what I've learned throughout my career. That's really, really insightful, and I, I totally agree with you. So to go a little bit deeper into your background with North Carolina, I know in 2018, the Raleigh Union Station was completed, and that was one of the projects that you worked on and one of your most uh, memorable and impactful projects. So um, since that has been completed, um, let me know how that has um, impacted the city today, what some of your circumstances were as it relates to how community pushed back and thought that wasn't going to happen and <laughs> all those things. Okay, so you did your homework. Yes. So what happened was that there were two attempts prior to me coming as plan director to create a, a multimodal transportation center in the heart of downtown. Uh, I came in with a third try and I said, this has got to work. So a lot of people left and said, this is not going to happen. We tried it before. We really put together a strong vision. I renamed the project, which was a multimodal center, MTC, into Raleigh Union Station. We actually had a union station in the past, and so that's how we were able to rebrand it. But we talked about how not just the hub was going to change the warehouse part of the district, but it was truly going to be a, a multimodal hub. We were looking at Amtrak high speed, we were looking at our local rail, and we were looking at our, our bus uh, station, which was a few blocks away. And so we ultimately got funding from the help of elected officials to actually do the study and then ultimately to build the station. We actually found this building that was hiding in plain sight right within what we call the railroad Y. So we didn't have to build a new building. It was in a center. And as a result, we went underneath the tracks and it's now a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, train station. New was going to happen is that the development around the train station called the Warehouse District exploded. It is now the hottest location in downtown. Older buildings, very authentic. It's something both Gen X and Gen Y look toward. It's not your standard new construction, but it's these older buildings, these warehouse buildings that are unique in Raleigh because most of Raleigh is new construction. This was more older construction, so it was unique, appealing, and now that part of town has taken off. The train station's now there, high speed's not there yet, but it's the beginning of a multimodal center that does have some transit connections with bus, and now that entire district is taking off. So in retrospect, I was there for the groundbreaking. I felt good, I was smiling, because I remember the day when people said this would never happen, but if you have a vision, and you're able to sell that vision, and you get the funding to implement that vision, you can make it happen. And so every time I hear the name Raleigh Union Station, it brings a smile to my face because that was a vision that now became a reality. Most definitely. And I think the most important thing as it relates to any type of project is getting the funding um, because we can, you know, plan it, we can talk about it, but if we don't have the money for it, then it's not going to happen. Right. A vision without money is a nice dream. Basically, yes. <laughs> okay, so now heading to your current position, 
Um, and I think, I believe you're over about 2,000 parks, is that correct? Uh, about, yes, like a little under 2,000 parks, okay, roughly okay. about 2,000, yes. Okay, so how do you best manage so many parks? <laughs> and what wow. are some of the unique initiatives that you have worked on to date in New York City parks? Well, first, we have an incredible structure. We have roughly about 7,000 employees. It goes up to 11,000 when we hire at summer seasonals. So we literally have an army out there that help care for our parks. Uh, we have a borough structure. New York City has five boroughs, and each borough has a borough commissioner that oversees operations for those boroughs. So it's a very strong chain of command. Everyone knows what they do. We're so good at our job. People know their sectors, what they clean. And so, believe it or not, it's relatively easy because you have that structure and structure in districts that every person knows what they do to keep the parks clean and manage the parks is relatively easy. So that's the part I enjoy, but beyond just caring for parks, we have forestry, we have public programs, uh, we, have, we have park enforcement. Uh, so it's a large agency, but in New York City, parks mean everything, particularly in this pandemic. Everything's closed, parks remain open, and people are so grateful for the parks being open. In terms of special initiatives, I'll name about four. We have a lot going on. The first, which just got recognized for an APA national award, was our community parks initiative. This was an initiative that focused on making sure that every neighborhood has a quality park. When the mayor hired me in 2014, he wanted me to pursue an agenda of having an equitable, safe, clean, and accessible park system. And a parks equity initiative just looked at all of our parks and we tried to figure out how many parks over 20 years received little to no investment. And it turned out there were over 200. Now we couldn't pay for all the 200, but we identified 67 and the mayor and the council gave us over $300 million to totally transform those play playgrounds and parks from the ground up. Not replace what's there, scrape them down to the dirt and rebuild them to 21st century standards. We've so far finished over 50 of the 67 and they have been just transformative of really changing those communities with our very unique public engagement. And now they're up and running and the community is now becoming stewards and stakeholders of those public spaces. So that's one, the Community Parks Initiative. The other one is the Parks Without Borders. Uh, I traveled around, came back to New York and like saying, what's up with all these gates and fences around our parks? It's our goal really of seeing what we can lower, eliminate or provide more access to parks so they can be more accessible. So Parks Without Borders, looks at the street, the entrances, the sidewalks, and adjacent park spaces. If we can reclaim the street and close it to expand the park, let's do it. If we can lower the fence so it looks safer when you pass by the park, let's do it. Or we can eliminate the fence entirely to make it feel more open. So the Parcel Borders is a $50 million program. Uh, almost all the projects are underway. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, all projects have now been on pause, but that's our way of creating more accessible parks and now we've done well over 100 of the Parks Without Borders initiatives. Another one is anchor parks. A lot of people look at Central Park and how much people had invested over time. And I felt rather than building new parks, let's make the old parks new again by sprucing them up in areas where they're really needed and it's a destination to the local community. So anchor parks are larger parks in New York City. And we invested 30 million, one per borough. Each borough got 30 million to really take an existing park that needed TLC and really spruce it up for the community. The last one, which is one of my favorites, and it's very inexpensive, is called cold pools. We recognize how horrible our municipal pools looked. You would go to a resort and wonder why these parks look so nice. Then you come to a city 
and look at our municipal pools. So we decided through some creative placemaking techniques to make a pool a place. We now have chairs, cabanas, umbrellas, cornhole, all sorts of games, tic-tac-toe, whatever we can do, that you come there as a family, as a destination, as a place, and not just a pool. We scraped out all the old gray paint and ugly paint and made it very vibrant colors, took down the fences, and transformed them for roughly about $150,000 per pool. So we've done almost uh, 15. We were hoping to do the rest this year. Again, that's on pause. So those are three examples of really changing our parks in New York City to provide our residents with an experience to deal with equity, make them safe, clean, and accessible. Awesome. I really like those initiatives. Um, and I want to highlight the first two you spoke of. So the first one you got the, um, the Community Initiative um, Award with APA based upon, um, I think this was Paul Davidoff Honorary Award with APA. And I did see on the watch party on um, Facebook a few days ago about, you know, everything that happened and what you guys did. And I thought it was really unique that you guys made sure that you involved the youth and the children because they're one of the main users of the parts. So please speak on and expound on the importance of involving all the users, adults and children alike, in the planning process. Well, first, because I'm a planner, we do have some planners in the parks department. I want to make sure all of our employees were on board and understood my style of public participation. So we had meetings early on before we started the process, and I wanted to educate staff about the difference between public outreach, public participation, and public engagement. So we had a conversation about what it meant, how you present, and why engagement is more important than just outreach. So we talked about how we had to do our homework, how we had to establish a relationship with people in the community, because an engagement means you're forming a relationship. Not I'm just coming to you, tell me what I want to hear, and then I leave. We had to really listen. I would get there early and walk the site. I remember there was one place where these kids would tell me about a rock slide. And I was like, what's a rock slide? So I went around uh, the park and I found the rock slide. And when I presented and I told everybody how many people know about the rock slide, everyone in the neighborhood knew exactly. It was this big giant rock that you could slide down. And that's where you make a connection, not just to go there to do outreach and check a box, but really engage your community to understand what they want. We purposely make sure we have the right people at the meeting. Seniors, we have translators there for people who speak a different language. We always have a kid's table. They are absolutely hilarious and come up with the craziest ideas because we want them to have ownership, to know what the design process is all about and that we are doing this for them. And three years later, they may be in second grade, but by fifth grade, it's done. And they have this sense of pride that they played a role. Plus their parents and grandparents show up and they have a vested interest and plus they're shocked because they're saying, I can't believe you're here. This playground has not changed in 20 years. What are you doing here? I can't believe you're here. And for us, it was also credibility. If we told them they would help us design it, we would actually fulfill some of the ideas that they gave us, rather than just putting them on the side. So they actually said, wait a minute, you listened to us. We thank you because you know your community, you know the little niches and the little design elements you want in your playground, and we delivered on those promises. So we really had to explain to the community and our planners, I don't want you talking too much. Give the raw information and then have a conversation and then tell them how they can help design their space because ultimately they're gonna be the stewards of these parks. Most definitely, yeah. And I think 
when you involve all the users that you know that builds trust within the community and once you come back a second time for future things they are more willing to get involved yes because how often is plants we're saying like why did i go to this public meeting you didn't do anything i told you to do so i'm not coming back now of course parks is different than you know urban design or land use but it's more of a design uh, exercise, but still it was very important to us. Uh, we told them we had a budget, so there were things they were asking for that was out of the budget, but at least we try to do our best to incorporate their ideas. And to me, that means a lot because again, engagement means we're developing a relationship. I need to be straight with you. That's a great idea. All the kids wanted tree houses and roller coasters. I'm like saying we can't do that in a playground, but at least we had a good time explaining why we couldn't do it, how much it costs, and what they could to get into their park. Most definitely. Um, so the second initiative you talked about was the Parks Without Borders. And as you were explaining that to me, I thought about homelessness. Yeah. And, and homelessness within the parks. Please, you know, talk about how you guys deal with homelessness in your parks and how do you guys best um, right. figure that out? Okay. And what I'm about to say is going to freak you out a bit, but you wouldn't have me on if I wouldn't uh, say some things that's near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. Well, first, uh, the mayor has a whole initiative to deal with the homeless population. And that's in parks, on streets, anywhere. So I want to put that for a second on the side. He's also working very hard on affordable housing and trying to help the unhoused to get housing. As it relates to parks, parks are for all mm -hmm. parks are for all and that does include an individual does not have a home parks are for all now there are some people that are uncomfortable with that statement but if a person that doesn't have a home cannot go to a park where can they go guess i'm going to share you a story that really changed my thinking uh, we went to a park in morningside it's in northern manhattan in harlem and there was this uh, women's club that donated money to fix a waterfall. As we were leaving, one of the vice presidents of the association knocked on my car window and was handing me six, about 33 cents. And I'm like, why are you giving me 33 cents? And she said, that homeless individual over there, he wanted to give you the money because he wanted to thank you for helping taking care of this park because this is where he comes each day just to feel alive. He was giving us all the money he had change because he came to that park to watch that waterfall because he can't stay in a shelter during the day to feel alive. Who am I to say, excuse me, you have to leave because I don't like the way you look. You're on one bench, but there are a lot of benches in this park. So from my opinion, while it's very difficult, we have to learn how to coexist with the homeless or those that don't have a home because from the very beginning when Umstead designed parks, Parks are for all. And that's something that's very hard for people to listen to, but that's something that I believe in. I really, really like that. I, I like that perspective a lot. I can't want to call you Gigi, because that's why I'm tripping up. I'm so used to Gigi, but can I call you Gigi or is this Gisla? What do you prefer? Uh, Gigi is fine. Okay. <laughs> that is totally fine. So, you know, we're, right now we're going through this COVID-19 pandemic. So how have things shifted in your department and how are you guys best coping with the lockdown in NYC as it relates to parks? I know your parks are still open, but what things have changed? Well, for one, about 10% of our staff are working from home. The rest are coming to work. 
they're considered essential workers, and yes, uh, parks are open uh, in New York City. Uh, the major change is that because of social distancing or physical distancing, we had to close a lot of elements within our parks. Playgrounds, basketball courts, tennis courts, soccer field, baseball, virtually everything other than just the passive part of the park have been closed. Uh, adult fence equipment, we warn people, please, if you can't social distance, we had to wrap tape or in some cases just pull them right out uh, of the ground and store them. So the parks are open. Uh, so that's really changed a lot that it's more for passive or solo exercise, running, walking, biking. Uh, but in terms of group play, not allowed, playgrounds, not allowed. Uh, this is springtime. I have to tell you, people are telling us that, wow, this is giving me hope. I'm calling them parks the sanctuary of sanity because the one place you can go to at least feel alive for part of that day. No one knew during this pandemic that parks would kind of be the savior of the city. The one thing that's open, movie theaters, restaurants, bowling alleys, everything's closed, but parks are open. And so our role has been elevated because we wanna make sure they're clean, they're accessible, those that are locked, stay locked, uh, that people don't jump over the fence and violate our social distancing guidelines. Uh, so it's changed our role, a lot more enforcement. We now have park ambassadors, staff who have been redeployed into parks to make sure people keep a distance from one another. So that's really changed our role. But I do suspect in the future that parks will play a very, very different role as they have for every pandemic we've seen both in Europe and here in America. Okay, so let's move into your APA experience. So you were the first African-American APA president. So how did you transition into that position? Um, and in transitioning, did you hold other leadership positions in APA? How did that go? Well, I first started as a section director in the New York Metro chapter. So I was a section director for New York City. We have different regions. And so I did that for a few years. I was also the co-founder of our diversity committee in New York back in the mid 90s. And then from there, I became chapter president for the New York Metro chapter, I did that for two terms. And that's when I started to really get much more active into APA, particularly on the national level. In 2000, I ran for the board of directors and I was elected. And that's where I took a lot of my vision, desire and uh, passion for diversity to the national level. Uh, and then I served uh, two terms as a board member and then I ran for president. Uh, it was 2011, it was right in the middle of the recession, and um, it was right after my brother had passed away very tragically, and so I wrote a position statement, because my head, you know, it was so overwhelmed by his passing that I decided to write a position statement to run for president that was so near and dear to my heart that a lot of people told me by reading that position statement that they knew I was going to win. And I just said I was proud to be a planner, and I knew the impact I can have on people who are here and not even born yet. And I wanted to make sure that planning was not just about place, it was about people. And you know, when uh, you have someone that really passes away, it makes you reflect on your life and what you do. And I was so honored to be a planner and to serve the American Planning Association that I poured my heart in that position statement and I poured my heart into the two years I served as president and really got people to pay attention to changing demographics no planner was really paying attention to it at that time and brought the changing faces to America, to the organization, got them to look at our code of ethics to say, look, even our code of ethics are telling us how we have to be different and be 
understanding uh, about how we plan for communities, particularly those who are disadvantaged. So it was an incredible two-year run. Got to travel the world, meet my fellow colleagues in planning across the country and the world, and uh, it has changed me to this very day. So getting involved in APA is something I have never regretted, and I don't know where I, what I've been without APA. That's a great story. Um, and I know that your brother impacted your, your running fanatic. You, you like to run. I know he impacted that. Uh, so I know your brother had a lot of impact in your life. And that's nice to hear. He did. So you were recently elected to the APA Board of Directors, I guess, again. <laughs> um, and now you're the a ASCP president-elect. What are some of the initiatives that you're trying to push forward within this position? Well, you know, in this position, you're really chair of the commission. So I want to continue the work that they're doing. First and foremost, we now have equity. Uh, that is uh, part of now mandatory certification maintenance. And so I'll be working on making sure that's implemented. Also on the APA, we have a policy guide. So we just want to make sure that equity really is a major component. We're taking a look at the test to make sure it's fair. Uh, we're looking at the exam again. That's something that we always get to do. We're taking a fresh look at our code of ethics. So those are some things I'm very, very excited about. Uh, the Code of Ethics inspired me. I read it at least once or twice a year just to refresh myself about our Code of Ethics. I encourage people to do that because it's such an amazing grounding, especially the aspirational principles. It just makes me go on fire with passion when I read it because it was so well written. But, you know, it's the 21st century. We're gonna take a nice fresh look so we're looking at the code of ethics, making sure we implement that CM for equity and just to look at the test because we want to make sure it's fair for everyone, remove the bias. Uh, so those are some of the things that I'll be uh, looking at over my term. Okay, cool. Um, so I know APA has really been pushing for their equity, inclusion, and diversity. And so what are your thoughts on maybe how APA could better what they're doing? Um, I know a lot of talk has been around this. I went to the conference last year. I went to all the sessions that I could <laughs> about equity and diversity. And I thought they were really great. And I just think that at this point, you know, we need to increase the diversity of the planners. So. Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, number one, people looking at each one, equity, diversity, inclusion are different. Mm -hmm. and so I think you have to take each one of those separately. I believe that APA 1 has to practice what they preach and do it within the organization themselves, but they also need to communicate out to the chapters, to the divisions, to the plain departments as much as possible. And so they have to take each one of those separately. Equity is about fairness. You know, how do you ensure? I don't like having racial equity and social equity. Equity is equity is about fairness. Because if you have racial equity, what about gender equity? And what about, so to me, I like to have fairness across the board as a value and a principle. And so you have to understand what does that look like for plan department? What does that look like for APA? What does that look like for society? So I think it's incumbent upon us to show exactly what equity looks like, which is why I like the community parks initiative. We had an unfair park system that we made fair. We had certain neighbors that were neglected, now they have something different. So we have to be able to share with the members what equity looks like. Diversity just makes sure everyone has an opinion. It's about religion, gender, sexual orientation, age, race, religious beliefs. To me, diversity is making sure you hear all those voices so you have a better product. More diversity provides a better outcome. It's not something on an EEO form you check. 
It's making sure that you bring more voices to the table so you produce a better outcome. Inclusion means that you're now truly part of the conversation and not exclusive. For example, when we design a parks and I start putting bocce in the hood or say you can't have basketball, you can exclude people from a park mm-hmm. without even saying you can come in by virtue of how you design it. Inclusive is saying you're welcome here. Detroit, Campus Marsh Park, in the heart of downtown, put a basketball court in the center of their downtown. Detroit had the guts to do that, and they told the young people, in that city, you are welcome here. And there's no crime, no violence. So to me, the term inclusive is the opposite of exclusive, and there are ways that we can design, there are ways we can form a committee that I don't feel welcome. So equity, diversity, inclusion, all mean three different things. APA as an organization has to communicate that so that the members, the chapters, individual planners know how to implement it. So to me, that's going to be the core thing to do. I totally agree with you on that. And I actually recently got on the Florida chapter um, equity, diversion, and inclusion um, committee, and we're trying to figure out different things of what we can do to ensure that we have those three key components within our state. Now, I say this because I've been living with this since the Uh mid-90s, so I'm not saying I'm the godfather of diversity with APA, but I've watched so many iterations over the past 20 years. Uh I'm very grateful it's now a policy guide. I'm very grateful it's now part of our core values. So this has been a long time coming. We had a landmark summit. It was called the Minority Summit back in 2004, and thereafter we called the Diversity Committee or Task Force. But I'm very pleased at APA and now AICP is taking it very, very seriously because my argument was we are diversifying as a country. We need to understand these changes. And as an organization that works with people, we need to practice what we preach. I most definitely agree with you on that. Okay, so as we wrap up, um, I would like to talk a little bit about one of your hobbies. I know it's running. Briefly talked about that. So how has running affected your planning of parks because i know you use the parks when you run so how does that affect it well that's my hashtag i run the parks because i run the parks i run the parks um (laughs) one is that uh when you're training for a marathon because i now run marathons i'm running my last this year if it's still on i'm hoping it's still gonna be on you get to run through a lot of parks and i'm able to see those parks by foot The first year I trained, uh, my staff had his whole campaign. That's where I Run the Parks came from, to expose people about all the beautiful parks we have here in New York City. So when I'm running with my crew, we would stop, take a photograph, tell people, look, we're in Van Cortlandt, we're in Pelham Bay. And so it was our way of exposing our beautiful park system to the public, but also expose people to getting healthy and running. I believe we're the Parks Department, but we're also the Department of Fun health and happiness. So it was my role to really show people how beautiful our park system is outside of Central Park or Prospect Park and to really show them what we have to offer. So it was a way both to run and of course I would stop if I saw something wrong. I would take a picture and go back to staff and say we got to fix this. But to see it by foot, to experience it myself and to go to some parks I've never been to as parks commissioner was a real joy. So running, I do it for mental health reasons as well as physical reasons. Uh, I ran most of my life, but uh, I stopped when I got here to New York, and I initially started running again in my 50s after my brother passed away. It was my way of connecting with his spirit because we ran high school, we ran for, for all our whole lives, and so um, 
it was my way of just, you know, connecting with him. And then when I came back to New York City, we actually grew up in Brooklyn together. I went to a doctor and he was very concerned about everything about my health, blood pressure, everything. Everything was going high. And so he said, you have to do something. You're not going to live a couple of years longer. And so for me, it was a wake up call. And I decided, wait a minute, I'm in Brooklyn. My brother's spirit is here as well. Started running again. And then from there, it went from 5K, 10K, half marathon to marathon. So it's both for me to connect with my brother, physical, mental health, but I also get to see all the beautiful New York City parks. I think that's really beautiful. Why is this year going to be your last run? Um, believe it or not, I'm turning 60 in June. Um, and so I'd like that to be a nice, uh, training for a marathon is hard. Uh, it takes a lot of time. It's four months of training, special diet, getting up early, depriving yourselves of a lot of things you like to do Friday night becomes different because you got to wake up for 30. So I like to have a glass of wine. I have to cut all that stuff down. It's serious four months of training starting right after July 4th, all the way up to uh, November when you run a marathon. So your entire summer's gone. And um, I just want a break. I want to run half marathons. They're easier. Okay. okay. But marathons, it's no joke. Uh, anyone who runs a marathon, I mean, they say 1% of the population runs a marathon. And so I've done two. This will be my third consecutive. Uh, I'll keep running, but I'm not going to do marathons. They're just, they're hard. You need to take a month off because your body is just so worn out. So I'll keep running, but marathons. Now, if my friends are listening to this, especially my best friend, April, she's trying to get me to Chicago, Berlin, London. <laughs> so I told her this is my last and she said, no, it's not. So I'm trying to tell her this is my last. I'll do halves, maybe two halves equal a whole. <laughs> but, but training for a marathon you think about it you start running six miles and your longest run is 22 miles that's not even getting to the marathon and so that's what you do on your long runs and uh it's three four days a week diet training strength training speed work hill work it's a lot of work <laughs> i can imagine i can imagine i did track and field and i hated it with a passion <laughs> Yeah, and the foam rolling, you know, all that stuff. The foam, I hate the foam roll. My wife and daughter laugh at me because I yell and scream when I get up, you know, closer to my hips. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's painful. It's painful. <laughs> okay, so um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with my audience or any advice that you'd like to give to future planners or current planners? Yeah, there is something that uh, I want to make sure, regardless of what age you are as a planner, um, there's two stories that I have to share. Uh, one, I met a professor, uh, and uh, she asked her students the first day of class to write an essay about why they wanted to be a planner. They wrote it down, she took it, and she didn't give it back to them. She had a 10-year reunion, and she invited the students back. Not everyone came back. And she handed out the envelopes to each of the students and asked them to read it. They read it, and some of them had tears in their eyes because they came into the profession with so much hope and excitement. And that 10 years for some of them, the profession sucked the life out of them and they weren't as happy as they were their first day as planning school. So the lesson that she said, and I agree with as well, is don't ever lose that passion. There were people, seniors, children, underserved communities that need you. Don't ever lose that passion. Remember why you started this profession in the first place and don't lose it. I have this speech I gave years and years ago, America needs you to fall in love with playing again because we are the change makers. We have to be different than other professions. And if you can go back and write the reason why you 
you pursue this profession in the first place, don't ever lose that fire or that passion because there are people counting on you. If you don't do it, my question is who will? Mm -hmm. So I wanna make sure in my career, I'm doing whatever I can to make communities better, parks better, neighborhoods better, so that people can thrive and grow and in, in turn, make sure other people can thrive and grow. So that's the kind of lesson I want to leave with is that don't ever, ever, ever lose that passion. Whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60, people need you to hold that passion because of the emerging trends we're facing. Now we're going to deal with the pandemic and what's next. We need those passionate people, those innovative thinkers to help us trailblaze the way forward. Awesome. Thank you for that. That was good advice for me, honestly. Well, good, because... Uh, <laughs> I've seen it happen to me when I turned 30. I'm like, what am I doing? And then the aha moment came, like saying, no, people need you. People need you. And I saw the difference I was making and it made me double down. And, you know, was I a little bit more uh, on the edge uh, of pushing things? Yeah, I was because I knew I was fighting for someone that was not in that room. I was fighting for a community that was not being represented. I was fighting for children that weren't born yet. And so I pushed harder because I knew as a planner that I plan for today but I also plan for the future. And I think my predecessors have thought about me when I wasn't even born. So yes, I'm gonna make sure that we have resilient communities, we have great public spaces that can last for generations. Because I grew up in Prospect Park and I have to thank Umstead and others that cherish that public space so I can thrive as a child. Yeah, um, and I think the reason why I sometimes I guess, lose the fire because my job is just so, so drab is so boring. But then that's uh, where APA, see, I tell people, find your outlet, find a group. I felt the same way as some of my jobs. I got active with APA, got involved with some of these projects. And actually, that's how people start to know me from my public presentations outside of the job. Because it's like, I was free. I had all this pent up energy. And they said, I did this whole thing on, it was community gardens. I call it the stepchild of, no, vacant lots was a stepchild or something. And everybody loved that article. And so it was my release. It was like my other ego where I can just come out and say stuff. So if you feel that way, use APA, write, speak, do what you're doing right now. You got a podcast. Yeah, it's not part of your job, is it? No, no, not at all. And no, that's really what brings me, you know, some sense of joy is doing things outside of my job because my right. job is just so zoning is extremely boring. boring. Yeah, it is. Well, see, you got to find out what else you can do in that office because zoning is, um, Zoning is zoning. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and you know, the reason, and I tell myself, you know, I didn't sign up for this really because I signed up to make a difference and what I'm doing in my job, I don't really see that. Now, that's why the things that I do outside of my job, I'm on the, I'm on the planning board and the chair of the planning board of my city. So I feel like, you know, in that position, I make it a difference. Right, so like I said, um, you're absolutely right. There are gonna be jobs where you feel like you're not making a difference, but you're doing the right thing. It keeps your fire going. It may lead to something else eventually, but you're actually doing the right thing. I did that as well. I wrote, I presented, I was involved in committees, and that's where I got my professional satisfaction. I liked what I did in my job, but not everything. So if you can find that outlet, find a group of people that you really bond with, you can do great things and your time will come and you'll be ready because now you've tested some of the ideas through those conversations with friends that you know can work. Yeah, thank you for that. I guess that's basically all that we have for today. So how can people connect with you? I'm on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, 
If you Google New York City Parks, you can get my work email. So those are all the ways um, I tend to, on Instagram, it's a combination of running and parks. On Twitter, it's more parks planning, a little bit of running. Uh, so that's each personality. LinkedIn is mostly just, you know, thought-provoking articles I want to put out there. Uh, so that's really um, the best ways for people who want to reach me. And it's Mitchell underscore silver. I did this years ago, so I got my name without putting funny numbers. Or... <laughs> it was available. I was like, oh, Mitchell Silver is there, underscore. Okay, I'll take it. Cool. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for joining me. And you have you know, been a wealth of knowledge. And hopefully, maybe somewhere down the line, you can be on again and we can talk about another topic. Sure. Hope to see you in Boston now since Houston ain't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so when did I meet you? I met you, was it? Last Which year. Which city? Oh, it was last year? Yeah, San okay. Francisco. Okay. Well, it's certainly a pleasure. See, I keep saying Gigi because I know what your nickname is. And I say Gisela. I said, okay, I got to switch gears now. <laughs> yeah. Well, enjoy Florida. Listen, be safe, okay? Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to be interviewed in a future episode, please head over to my website at ggtheplanner.com and select the interview tab and you can request to be interviewed by me in a future episode. That's all for today, folks. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Urban Planners Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over and leave a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast so that you won't miss out on an episode. If you would like to buy personalized urban planning gear and other products or are in need of some urban planning career coaching, please head over to ggtheplanner.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at ggtheplanner. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.